Are you familiar with the phrase gung-ho? Normally it's used as an adjective to describe someone who is super enthusiastic, eager, zealous, ready to hit the ground running. Gung-ho, it's a, an Americanized version of a phrase United States military personnel picked up while deployed in China during World War II was popularized as a motto for the United States Marines who were gung-ho to win the war. What I'm told is that in Chinese, the original phrase means more than just being uber-excited. It means work together. Be excited, be energized about working together to accomplish your goals because you can do more together than you could ever accomplish on your own. We now call that synergy, you know, where combined effort achieves more than what we could what could be accomplished by the separate parts. It's true in business, true in sports, and true in the church. And I love that we're a gung-ho church. When we work together, we see God do great things. When we work together, we can accomplish great things for Christ. For example, our Easter offering for our ongoing work in the African country of Malawi, one of the poorest countries in the entire world. In 2006, I was with the first team from our church to visit Malawi with African Enterprise and World Vision. We were taken to an impoverished region of the country near the capital city of Lalangwe. And here's a picture I took of the only school in that area at the time. Not the building, the tree behind the building where the children are sitting on the ground. That was their school. If it rained, school's out. That plot of dirt and all the teacher had to teach with was a blackboard on an easel. That was for the whole region. Well, we brought that challenge uh, home, and since then, we have become gung-ho for Malawi. We got other churches to partner with us, and when I went back to Malawi in 2013, I got to see the many schools our mission dollars had built with teachers and supplies throughout the region. Hundreds and hundreds of kids will have a better future because we were gung-ho about their education. We did that. And then with World Vision, we completed a five-year area development plan that also addressed food security and clean water, medical care, economic development, and all the rest. I mean, gung-ho, church. We built a women's vocational training center. We partnered with other Christian groups to provide evangelism and discipleship so that whole villages could be exposed to the gospel through the indigenous church. We did that and more. In fact, we did such a good job, they don't need us in that area anymore. They can do it for themselves, and isn't that the way it should be? Gung-ho, church. So now we move on to a new area of the country, Nakotakota, a predominantly Muslim area near Lake Malawi, where we can replicate some of the same effective ministries through this year's Easter offering for vocational training, which serves as a bridge to evangelism. Gung-ho, church. Let's work together. Make sure you give to the Easter offering. And that's what I love about this church. All our mission trips are that way. They are gung-ho, work together, whether it's the high school kids going to Mexico or people serving on the relief bus or, or how about a new mission trip just now being planned for families, adults, singles for this coming July to go to Northern Ireland to help our mission partners, the Samuels, with an evangelistic campaign through Youth with a, Wish, with a Mission, YWAM. Maybe God will touch your heart to go. If so, you need to see Nancy Rascala Hembray right away because we can only send a small team. That's great about ministries in Africa, Mexico, Ireland, or New York City, or Newark. But what about being gung-ho for ministry right here in our own backyard? 
more and more the real mission field, the place where we need to be sharing the gospel of the kingdom is right here in our own neighborhoods, schools, and businesses. What if we really became gung-ho about that? What if we decided to get off our butts and get serious about serving Christ right here at home? What if we stopped making excuses for our mixed-up priorities and really put Christ first? What if we became gung-ho about our financial giving to the church? What if we, together as a church, were gung-ho about the five missional habits that we've been talking about over the past few weeks? Habit number one, uh, each week to bless at least one person who's outside the church with a word of encouragement, an act of kindness, or a simple gift. Habit two, each week to eat with at least one person from outside the church, to deepen a friendship, invite them into conversation, into community, into commitment to Christ. Habit three, each week to set aside one block of time to really listen for the Holy Spirit, to challenge and direct us in our interactions with people in the wider world. And today, what if as a church we took one block of time every week to really learn Jesus? What if as a church we became known for the fact that if you come here, you're going to encounter the living Christ and be challenged to go deeper into Him. What if our reputation was like that in the wider community? That we are all gung-ho for Jesus. You see, some churches are all about, I don't know, entertainment. People go there because, you know, they put on a good show. It feels good. It's inspiring. It's uplifting. It sounded like a sugar rush, but not much depth. Other churches are all about, you know, social issues, and people go there knowing that politics is the main agenda. Some churches have a, have a close family feel, but often it's a closed circle and new people don't have a way in, so the church tends to stay small and cliquish, and quite frankly, that's the way they like it. But we as a church, we are gung-ho about helping people take their next step into a thoughtful faith that's wrapped around a deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it means when we say we're a Christ-centered church. So this fourth habit, described by Michael Frost in his book, Surprise the World, this fourth habit is to learn Jesus. This should be like a no-brainer for us, right? But is it? Are we really gung-ho to learn Jesus? Let me read just six verses from the Gospel of Matthew to help us sort this out. Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30, where Jesus is first praying to the Father and then speaking to his followers. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and have and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As I read that last part of the verse, I breathe a deep sigh of relief. Weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? I mean, anyone here fits that category, weary and burdened? Of course, we, we all feel that way at times. The original audience felt the same. But there's so much more going on here than just setting us up to get a good night's sleep and waking rested. Jesus is offering an alternative lifestyle. 
an alternative lifestyle, an alternative to the lifestyle that produces nothing but weariness and burdens and exhaustion. Yes, he's speaking to a culture different from ours, but not dissimilar from ours. Both cultures have an intensity that produces weariness. The weariness in Jesus' day came from this intense religious system. Priests and scribes and rabbis and teachers of the law and Sadducees and Pharisees. There were a lot of layers to this religion. The Pharisees were like the religious police. They were vigilant students of the Old Testament, obsessed with doctrinal and moral purity, but not in a healthy way. They created hundreds and hundreds of additional laws surrounding the laws of the Ten Commandments. I mean, just trying to remember all of their laws was a full-time job. They were gung-ho about protecting the law of Moses. But in doing so, they reduced faith to trying to, to earn God's love through this strict legalistic obedience, rather than engaging in a relationship with the Lord. So they served on every committee, volunteered for every program, gave at least 10% of their gross income to the temple. Uh, they never missed worship or prayer group, and they were always on time. Their obedience was near perfect in everything they did. You see, they understood the intent of the Old Testament, but missed the application. Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3.24 that the law was supposed to push people toward a grace relationship with God. Instead, the Pharisees heaped tremendous amounts of guilt on the average person. What they expected was, was unattainable and exhausting. Jesus summed it up this way in Matthew 23. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Jesus is suggesting there's an alternative. If we're going to live a life that honors God, then we first and foremost commit to the discipline of learning from him. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. How do we do that? The Pharisees thought God's acceptance was based on their performance. Do good things and God will love you. Don't do good things and he won't. The more you perform, the more God loves you. And Jesus said they got it all wrong. God already loves you, already chosen you. Nothing you can do to earn his love. We already have it. We already have all of God's love. And there's nothing to do to get more of it. The truth, Jesus said, this truth is, is something that God hid from the wise and revealed to little children. The truth about God's nature, God's character, is revealed, not acquired. Revealed. Revealed by the Son to those who will receive it as a child. It's not something acquired through our efforts. The Pharisees, you see, they had a lot of information about God, but that's not the same thing as having a relationship with God. Big difference about knowing about someone and knowing someone. I, I know a lot about Eli Manning, quarterback of the New York Giants, but I don't know Eli Manning. Fill in your favorite actor, musician, politician, sports star, internet sensation, whoever. Big difference between knowing about and knowing someone. God the Father is revealed by Jesus. Jesus tells us no one knows the Father but the Son. And the Son is the only one who perfectly reveals God to humanity. In other words, the only way to know the heart of God is to know the Son of God. You know how people will say, you know, all religions are basically the same. All religions basically teach the same thing. Absolutely not true. What's the difference between all the great religions? This verse. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Underline it in your Bible. No one knows the Son except the Father, 
And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If this verse is true, then it creates a huge Grand Canyon-sized divide between the Christian faith and all other religions. If this verse is not true, then all Christian churches should just close their doors because we have nothing to say to the world. Jesus offers an alternative life. Jesus invites us off the hamster wheel of performance to take up his yoke. Well, what's a yoke? It's not the center of an egg. That's spelled different. A yoke is something for old-time farmers. It's the wooden harness that goes around the neck of a beast to pull a cart or a plow. Anybody here uh, own some oxen? No? Uh, well, many farmers today, most farmers use a tractor. But maybe you've seen a yoke in action if you've ever been to Amish country and saw the Amish farmers plowing fields probably with horses. Or maybe you've been to a state fair and you've seen an, an, an ox pull. I mean, everybody, everybody loves a good ox pull, right? Or you've seen it in movies or books. Well, even that's not literally what Jesus means. Because in Jesus' day, the yoke was the religious leader's set of teachings. Each rabbi had his own particular set of teachings about the law that he would impart to his disciples, his own interpretations, applications, his methodology for living for God. This was the yoke passed on to that rabbi's followers. And the yoke of the Pharisees was heavy and burdensome. Symbolically, their, their yoke didn't fit. It chafed. It created blisters. It rubbed people raw. On the other hand, Jesus' yoke was light. His teachings were light. They fit well. Were, were his teachers, teachings less rigorous than the Pharisees? Well, no. I mean, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus reinterprets the meaning of the Old Testament law for his followers, he said, you've heard it said, but I say. Remember those? He did a series of those. In each of those statements, Jesus actually ups the ante as he draws his listeners' attention back to the meaning, the intent of the law, not just the words. Murder, not a good thing, right? Jesus said, if you or I are angry or call somebody a fool, we're in danger. Just because you haven't killed someone doesn't mean you're off the hook. We've all been angry at someone and thought they were being fools. So we've all missed the mark. Jesus goes on to say, if, if you look at someone as an object of lust, you've already committed adultery because you've object, objectified that person in your heart. And then Jesus drops a bomb on his listeners in Matthew 5.20. says, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like, what? That means there's no hope because there are some pretty righteous dudes out there and you can't outperform them. Is Jesus, you know, trying to have it both ways, telling us that he will relieve our burdens on the one hand, but then calls us to greater righteousness on the other? Tells us his yoke is light, but then demands even a greater degree of obedience? Is this some kind of bait and switch? In his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, Dr. Craig Keener writes this. This is so good. Jesus' yoke is not lighter because he demands less of us, but because he bears more of the load with the burdened. The difference in the yoke of the Pharisees and the yoke of Jesus is that Jesus isn't asking us to pull this alone. He doesn't just dump heavy loads on us. In fact, he bears the heaviest load for us in the shape of a cross that he carried to Skull Hill when he was crucified. He carried the load of our sin on his shoulders. And now on this side of the cross, he continues to bear with us the burdens of each day, each temptation, each discouragement, <coughs> excuse me, each moment of suffering. There is nothing Jesus is going to ask of us that he will not be willing to bear with us. 
through all the times that we might feel like shouting, this is too heavy, God. In fact, even then, He is bearing it with you and for you. His yoke is grace. His is a yoke of grace. And through Jesus, we learn that God doesn't love us because we perform. He loves us because we're His. I mean, do parents love their kids only when they perform well and don't love them when they don't? If, if they do, well, that's a perversion of parenthood. Is this yoke of grace too simple? Will it just lead to you know, cheap grace where people take advantage of Christ's forgiveness? Well, some folks will always settle for cheap grace, but in reality, I'm not sure they understand grace is, what grace is or that they've really experienced. It's just kind of an imitation of grace of their own creation. You can't live that way if you really know Jesus. It's like the crowds on Palm Sunday who shouted Hosanna as Jesus entered the city and yelled crucify him a few days later on Friday. If we truly come to understand the depths of Christ's love and know, and we know that we know we are deeply and passionately loved by God, that produces a passion and obedience in us. At that moment, we're filled with a deep and abiding sense of gratitude. We don't live for Jesus out of obligation, but out of loving desperation. That's what that casual Christian never knows. We live for Jesus out of a loving desperation, and that love for Jesus must be shared. How do we get that kind of passion for Jesus? Jesus invites us to learn from him. On a practical level, Michael Frost suggests the fourth missional habit, to set aside one period of time each week just to read and reflect on the Gospels. Read, read, and reread Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If we want to learn from Jesus, then we need to become intimately familiar with what he actually said. Unfortunately, most people who call themselves Christians, they don't actually know the words and teachings of Jesus at all. I mean, ask yourself this, which would last longer, a conversation about Jesus or a conversation about your favorite sports team or TV show or movie? Many Christians have only a passing knowledge of the Gospels. They kind of know the greatest hits. They know the manger at Christmas, the cross, the empty grave at Easter. But that's it. They, they don't know the details. They can't quote him. They don't really know what Jesus said in between. Maybe a beatitude or two. But how can we possibly reflect Christ to the world if we have no idea what we're talking about? Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis said it this way. The whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. You see, this is the reason, the only reason the church exists, to draw people into Christ and to make them little Christ. That's what the word Christian literally means. It means little Christ. It was first used by people outside of the church as an insult to the first century followers of Jesus. But they liked it. Didn't feel like it was an insult at all because it captured their faith's goal was to be like Christ, to be a little Christ, to be a Christian. So habit four, learn Jesus. Once a week, read the Gospels in big chunks like you're reading a novel. Try to read one of the Gospels all the way through at one sitting. I mean, start with Mark. It's the shortest. I mean, why can't we read chapter after chapter of a novel or biography, but reading a gospel all the way through, it's just, oh, we can't do it. And we're not excluding other parts of the Bible. The whole Bible is important. Jesus is part of the triune God, is the author of all of Scripture, not just the gospels. But for this habit, 
immerse yourself in Jesus in the Gospels. Live with his words. Let his words just kind of saturate your soul. Ruminate on what he says. Meditate on his teachings. Memorize. Really chew on it. Maybe read some books about what other people have said about Jesus, like Philip Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew or N.T. Wright's book, The Challenge of Jesus. Both of those are great. If you're new to this, make sure you have a Bible that uses modern English like the NIV. If you don't have a Bible, I will get you one, or you can download the free NIV Bible app for your phone, and that way you can carry Scripture with you wherever you go. Also, we have a free gift for you this morning to help you learn Jesus. It's a little booklet from Scripture Union called The Essential Jesus. It gives you 100 daily readings from the Bible about Jesus. It's a very simple plan. You check off each passage as you read it. It helps you to know how to get started and also marks your progress as you go. If you want one, they're free. Just pick one up from an usher in the back as you leave today, or we'll have some up front as well. It's a great tool to help you take your next step. If we're going to live like Jesus, if we're going to be little Christ, we need to spend time learning from Jesus. So immerse yourself in the gospel so that you can live a compelling life. I believe a commitment to this habit will produce a rich and vibrant fruit in our lives, individually and as a church. Imagine how powerful a church we could be if everyone was gung-ho to learn Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are just in love with you. And when we see what you teach, when we see the way you treated people and interacted with people, what you valued and who you conflicted with, Lord, all of that helps us to make sense of who we are and what our faith is all about. Give us a hunger. Give us this passion for your word, Lord. Help us to just saturate our souls with the Gospels. And in so doing, Lord, just, just give us then opportunities to share that passion with others. We just thank you for this habit in Christ's name. Amen.